When it comes to music, uh, kids these days, I have a 16-year-old and a 12-year-old, and uh, they just do not understand either the joy or the peril of the way things used to be. All of us who are old enough to have bought our music in an actual record store um, know exactly what I'm talking about here. So, you know, these days you can stream whichever songs you like by your favorite artist. I use Apple Music, um, and they even have this list of essentials for just about any musician you can think of. So, you, you know, you type in the name of your artist you're looking for, and the first thing up is their uh, quote-unquote essentials. You can, you can stream or download pretty much any song you want anywhere in the world. I was uh, on vacation last week in Alaska. I had the world of music uh, at my fingertips. <clears throat> and I use this feature a lot. So I, I looked on my phone, and here are the list of essentials that are on my phone right now. Um, Billy Joel, uh, Don Henley, The Eagles, Ed Sheeran, that's because of my boys, uh, Elton John, Gordon Lightfoot, even though Whitney said I shouldn't mention Gordon Lightfoot, but I love Gordon Lightfoot. Uh, James Taylor, Johnny Cash, Prince, Sting, The Beatles, Willie Nelson, and of course, U2. Uh, but back in the day, if you were a fan, and you know what I'm talking about here, every time your favorite artist released a new album, you actually got in the car and drove to the record store and purchased that album, or vi you know, on vinyl or eight track or cassette or CD or whatever, depending on your age. And the thing about that is, uh, buying an album was kind of like rolling the dice, right? Because some songs were fantastic. These were the ones that made it to the radio, the songs everyone knew. And then for true fans, you know, we could identify those hidden gems, the one that were not released to the radio, mass audiences didn't know them, but we did as true fans. But then on an album, there were always those, you know, those clunkers, right? That never should have been released, that only were there to, to fill space on the album. And because of the way the industry was back then, you had to buy the whole thing. This was the joy and peril of being a music fan back in the day. Now, uh, if you waited long enough, if you were patient enough, you could buy a, a greatest hits album, right? The, the best songs from a few different albums that they put onto one record, uh, kind of like Apple Music does with Essentials. But every once in a while, uh, there was an album where every single track was amazing. These were the exception to the rule. Um, but these were those wondrous occasions where the entire album was worth listening to. The entire album was almost greatest hits level good. And the prime example of this for me was this album. Anybody else have Carol King's Tapestry album? Surely some of y'all did. I'm not the only one, I know I'm not. Um, <laughs> believe it or not, I fell in love with this album uh, when I was at sea in the Navy. I listened to it constantly. I listened to this album for years, just assuming that it was a greatest hits album. And when I finally re uh, learned that it was in fact just her second studio album, I couldn't believe it. These days, if you look up Carole King on um, Apple Music's Essentials, which I did to check this, there are 23 total songs by her. Nine of them are from Tapestry, which only had 12 songs to begin with. And I'm guessing that each of you has your list of albums that are like that. I've got a couple more that I could name. Technically not greatest hits albums per se, but good enough to be because from time to time, the greatest artists simply outdo themselves. Well, the Sermon on the Mount is kind of like that. <laughs> 
In our four gospels, Jesus does a lot of teaching. He says a lot of things and every bit of it is important, of course, for us as his followers. In fact, just in the gospel of Matthew alone, he has five extended teachings, what scholars call the five discourses in Matthew. And unless you're a Bible study nerd or a seminary student, you probably can only name one of them, the Sermon on the Mount. It's the first of those teachings in Matthew that has long been recognized uh, as his greatest and most challenging teaching. This is his masterpiece, if you will. In fact, the, the founder of Methodism, John Wesley, called the Sermon on the Mount, quote, the sum of all true religion. It's like a greatest hits album, except that uh, instead of compiling a list from a bunch of different sermons, the Sermon on the Mount is three chapters of some of his best known work preached at the very beginning of his ministry as recorded in Matthew. Sermon on the Mount begins with what we call the Beatitudes, which really are an entire sermon series in and of themselves, so we, we did not cover those in this series. But then immediately following the Beatitudes, Jesus continues with a metaphor for disciples that's become a colloquialism in English and the inspiration for the title of the series, Salt of the Earth. We talked about that in week one. Then two weeks ago, we talked about Jesus' famous expectation that we turn the other cheek and love our enemies. Last week, Reagan preached on the, the passage where Jesus encourages us, uh, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring worries of its own. And passage after passage in the Sermon on the Mount is quotable and memorable and essential. All of which is to say the Sermon on the Mount is, is preaching and teaching at its best and its most effective. Today, what we're gonna do is read the beginning and the end of the third and last chapter of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we're gonna start with a verse that is often quoted. You could probably quote it yourself, um, but it is much harder to obey than to recite. So this is Matthew chapter seven, verses one to five. Listen, friends, for the word of God as it is proclaimed by God's servant, the evangelist Matthew. This is Jesus talking to his disciples, which means us. Do not judge so that you may not be judged. For with the judgment you make, you will be judged, and the measure you give will be the measure you get. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye and do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your neighbor, let me take the speck out of your eye while the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So a couple weeks ago I said that the, uh, the turn the other cheek slash love your enemies part of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' most challenging teaching to me. Our passage today falls into the um, maybe easiest to understand but maybe hardest to follow category. <laughs> It may be the teaching of Jesus that we violate most frequently and most enthusiastically because it is much easier, much easier to focus on the shortcomings of others than it is to take a hard look at our own. It is much easier to point out the, the mess in somebody else's yard than it is to clean up our own. It is much easier for us to criticize and judge others than it is to take a hard look at ourselves. And of course, Jesus was a, a keen observer of the human condition. He, he knew this, of course. Now, 
we need to say here that his point to the disciples um, was not that we should avoid helping each other overcome our shortcomings, right? I mean, part of our life together in Christian community is that we, we challenge each other and we, and we help each other grow. That's, that's part of what life together is all about. But his point was that we should focus on improving our own shortcomings first. And then, uh, you know, repenting, turning around when we need to and asking God's help to do better. And then, you know, if we feel led or uh, better yet, if we are asked slash invited to help others overcome theirs, we should be generous and merciful in doing so. Because for Jesus, uh, judging was, is the opposite of forgiving. And he, he taught this in the previous chapter in the Sermon on the Mount. We didn't cover this uh, in this series, but he, he gives us the Lord's Prayer in the sixth chapter, and then immediately after he says, if you forgive others their trespasses, if you forgive others your, their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. It's a very similar sentiment to uh, do not judge so that you may not be judged, right? It's about our, our taking an honest look at ourselves rather than criticizing and judging others. That's pretty straightforward, <clears throat> but we sure do struggle with it <laughs> because it's so easy to judge. It, it just comes so naturally to us. There's a woman named um, Alice Roosevelt Longworth. You may not have heard of her, but she was the... Uh, I believe the first child of President Teddy Roosevelt. And she was, um, she was quite a character. She had a very entertaining biography. She lived a long time. She lived to be 96 years old, which was all the way until 1980. And she is actually the one who first said something that was made popular nine years after her death by the, the 1989 movie Steel Magnolias. Now, I have never seen Steel Magnolias. I, that's, what, that's what Whitney says too. That's what my wife says too. But my wife Whitney has seen Steel Magnolias. And I know this line because she's quoted it over the years. And it always makes us laugh when she, she does. If you've seen the movie, which clearly some of you have, <laughs> um, it's a famous scene. So Olympia Dukakis's character is saying something very judgy about some of her relatives. And she's talking to Dolly Parton's character. And Dolly Parton's character is surprised that Olivia Dukakis's character is saying these mean things, these judgy things about her kin. And Olympia Dukakis's character replies, well, as someone always said, if you can't say anything nice about anybody, come sit by me. <laughs> it comes naturally. Ironically, uh, and unfortunately, I think, the church, at its worst now, uh, has a reputation for being judgy. Y'all probably know this. If you've got friends that are not in the church, you may have heard this criticism before. Uh, different denominations, I mean, like different uh, flavors or expressions of Christianity, depending on their theology, uh, judge people for different things. Rightly or wrongly, it's an image that often sticks to Christians. But we can avoid that reputation when we take seriously the opening uh, verse of the seventh chapter of Matthew. A couple of weeks ago, the pastors in the North Texas Conference gathered for our first clergy session with our new bishop, uh, Bishop Reuben Sines. And in his sermon that day, he said something that caught my attention. I think it caught all of our attention. He was talking about um, 
how some people believe that you can be spiritual but not religious. I know you've heard this before. And he was specifically talking about how some people think you can be uh, a follower of Jesus without being part of a church, that they can essentially be a, a disciple by going it alone. And, and he said, just very matter-of-factly and very accurately, in my opinion, uh, that going it alone is, is incompatible with Christian teaching. Um, it's a powerful phrase, I think. And it's one that surely applies to Jesus' most famous sermon, including the part that we're reading today. Judging others is, in fact, incompatible with Christian teaching. We know so because Jesus said so very clearly. Uh, and it seems to me that, that the world would be a much happier place if we all kind of left the judgment to, to God, right? All right, well, let's see how the Sermon on the Mount ends. This is chapter 7, verses 24 to 29. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on rock. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was its fall. Now when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astounded at his teaching for he taught them as one having authority and not as their scribes. So as Jesus ends what, what most scholars, what most of us would have to consider his masterpiece, he closes uh, his Sermon on the Mount with a story. Like I said, the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew chapter five, six, and seven. And everything up to this point um, had been straight teaching and commandments, calling us all to a higher righteousness. But here at the end, he closes with what preachers call uh, an illustration. And as it turns out, this closing illustration is, one of, is the first of what will be many parables in the Gospel of Matthew. It's the first one he tells. Now, for some people, the Christian faith is, is mostly about what we believe. Um, and I think it certainly matters, of course, what we believe. It matters very much. Uh, that's the reason we pray a creed together. Every, every Sunday. It reminds us what we collectively have always believed. It's why we have prayers and worship that reinforce our theology for that day. It's why we're very careful about which hymns we sing, uh, that they reflect our Methodist theology and that they are consistent with what we're talking about that day. It's why we spend so much time and energy raising our kids in the church and then continuing to grow in our faith as adults. All of that is because what we believe is vitally important. Now for other people, uh, Christianity is mostly about the one in whom we have put our trust, our faith, our loyalty, and that obviously matters uh, a lot. As I told our kids last month, my, my youngest was confirmed last month in confirmation, and I told the kids in that confirmation sermon that I personally believe that is the most important decision any of us makes in our lives, who we believe in, who we put our trust in, who we put our, uh, give our loyalty to because that decision uh, shapes everything else in our lives, or at least, at least it should. So what we believe matters and who we believe in matters a great deal. 
But it is fascinating, I think, and more than a little revealing that in his most famous teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus does not really talk all that much about what we should believe or even to whom we should give our faith and trust. Now those are obviously very important things, no doubt about that, and he does indeed talk about them in other places in the gospel, but they are not what he spends the three chapters of the Sermon on the Mount talking about. Now, if you've not read it yet, I'd encourage you seriously to go home and read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. By all means, email me. If you think I'm wrong about this, I am chris at cumc.com. I love getting email. (laughs) What Jesus spends the Sermon on the Mount talking about is what we should do. He calls us to a higher righteousness by detailing how we should act and how we should pray and how we should relate to each other and how we should love. And then he closes this brilliant sermon with a memorable illustration that reinforces the point, which is uh, what a good sermon illustration does. Everyone, this is Jesus speaking now, who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock, but everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Some people try to think their way into right action, and there's nothing wrong with that. But Jesus is very clearly teaching us here to act our way into right thinking. Hearing the Sermon on the Mount and not doing what he says is, according to him, the path of folly. While the enduring wisdom of almost 2,000 years is to take him at his word and do what he says. The 13th century Persian poet Rumi, although he's from a a different religious tradition, had a wonderful insight that I think uh, succinctly captures the ethos of our readings for today. He said, yesterday I was clever, and so I wanted to change the world. Today I am wise, so I am changing myself. As Christians, we believe that the risen Christ dwells within us all, and that the Holy Spirit is our constant guide and companion, so that we're not exactly improving ourselves so much as we are partnering with God who transforms us. And that is good news, (laughs) because the theological essentials to be found in the Sermon on the Mount set expectations that would be daunting without the hand of God working within us. Over the past month, we've, we've heard Jesus invite us to stand out for the right reasons in a culture that is too often at odds with the gospel. May we be wise enough to do what he is calling us to do. Amen.